Anyway, here on Fuzzy Logic, I'm going to kick off with a little story. And back in February 2017, I was thinking about writing this book. And at the time, I was calling it uh, Renewing Australia. I didn't really know exactly what the book would be other than that I wanted to tell the story about champions of the environment, people who are actually doing something really substantial to make a difference in our uh, approach to the environment. Let's face it, it's a pretty it's a pretty bleak story. So I went to the Community Energy Congress in Melbourne and I'm not really good with crowds. I'm not a particularly gregarious person sometimes, but the the vibe there was just remarkable. It was really a positive and upbeat and engaging thing. And I didn't know anybody, but I started telling people that I was going to write this book. And they said, oh, really? You should meet so-and-so and so-and-so. And And before long, I was getting messages and texts. And I met this person named Charlie Prell. And Charlie... (laughs) Charlie and I got on really well and we went and had lunch and everything and I said, Charlie, do you want to be in my book? And he said, yes, for sure. And guess what? Charlie's in the studio with me right now. Good morning, Charlie. Good morning, Rod. It's great to be here. Now, Charlie is a uh, a grazier, I think, not just a sheep farmer, but also cattle I learned recently out near Crookwell and a champion of renewable energy and active one of the founders, in fact, of Farmers for Climate Action. And uh, Charlie, do you want to give me a really quick summary of your background? Where does your climate and environmental awareness come from? Thanks, Rod. Um, Yeah, listen, firstly, thank you very much for including me in your book. I'm I'm honoured to be part of that. Um, And the title you used for the chapter that I'm in is called the accidental activist. That's exactly who I am. I didn't choose to be an activist, but I am now an activist. My journey began about 20 years ago when we were approached by a wind farm company to host wind turbines on my property, which is about an hour and a half north of Canberra, uh, as we were leading into the millennium drought. And as you know, um, climate and wind energy has been very, very controversial, particularly where I live. I live in the heart of the current energy minister's electorate. He wasn't the energy minister. He wasn't in parliament at that time. But wind office very soon became very controversial. I could see the massive benefits that wind, particularly if it was developed properly, would bring to the region where I live, which was beginning to suffer from the millennium drought, but was already suffering from a huge commodity drought, commodity price crash that we had in the 1990s. Um, so, so because it was so hard to get these turbines up on my on our property, and when I say my, I mean our, my wife and I, Chris and you met as well, um, it was really important for us to understand what the wind industry actually meant, what it was and what it was proposed to to do and there was a lot of debate about the merit of turbines whether they were going to make any difference to climate at all whether climate change was real etc 20 years ago it's a long time Um, that really sparked my interest in climate as we headed into the millennium drought which then was the most intense drought we've had for 100 years we've since had one in the late 20 teens that was more intense Um, 
And I learned a lot about the threat of climate. I spoke to a lot of climate scientists. I spoke to a lot of renewable energy advocates um, in and around Canberra, but all over Australia. And then decided that the opportunities for farmers, regional Australians and farmers from hosting renewable energy, wind and or solar, were just unbelievable. It was a gold, a gold rush and we had to take advantage of it. What, what does uh, having turbines on your property mean for the economics of your farm? It means that I can, um, I have the resilience and the, the versatility, the diversity of income to be able to weather pretty much any drought. So I've gone from a really struggling, as you know, I've told it's talk, you talk about in your book, uh, my wife and I both had mental health problems from stress and depression through that millennium drought. We had young children who are now 30-year-olds nearly. Um, we went from a struggling farming family that had to sell a third of our property to maintain our equity with the bank to now um, our mental health is much, much better. It's, uh, mental health is a pretty fragile thing, as you know, and it's not, it's not, it's, there's no such thing as being in good mental health, but our mental health is much, much better. And I'm now employing two people, permanent part-time, and I'm running a farm that is environmentally, ecologically, by that I mean diversely yeah. and economically sustainable. I, I could imagine this graph showing the income of a primary producer and it's things fluctuating mm. wildly, going up and down. Mm. You've got good years and then you have bad years, you have drought, and then you bring something like the wind turbine onto your property and mm. you've got this, your income just smoothed out. Yeah. And is that right? And does that allow you then to look after the land in a way that you couldn't afford to do when you're struggling? It absolutely does. The, the beauty of wind turbines in, in windy districts, uh, well, I, I'll probably... The, the, the wind industry has changed, the technology has changed so much in the last 20 years that the wind turbines today don't need to be on the top of the ridges, the ridge lines that, that used to be the case because they're, they're so technologically advanced that they can actually capture the wind pretty much anywhere. Um, the, the footprint of the wind turbines is very small. So on our farm, the, the income that they produce from about a football field um, size uh, pad at the base of the turbines is by f is way 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 above what you can produce from an agricultural point of view, from sheep or cows or cropping. You mean or the income per yep. unit of land. Yeah, but the the most important part of it, as you mentioned, is that that income is not weather dependent. So one of the one of the tax advantages farmers do have is this thing called income averaging, where you can take your profits from a really really good year and write them off against losses in bad years. I don't have an opportunity to access that anymore because our income stream is very, very stable. It's predictable. You have a predictable yeah. income. Yeah. How, how have you found uh, attitudes to renewable energy changing over that time in the rural communities? From 2020, 20, from, sorry, from 2001, when we first started talking about wind turbines at home, there was a lot of fear in our local community. There was no turbines around. There was one tiny wind farm. Um, there was a lot of fear and a lot of uh, dire predictions about the impact that the wind turbines were going to have on the land, on the people, on the animals, on the birds, on the environment, 
every, you name it, everything wind turbines were responsible. Very, very for negative, in other words. Yeah, but it was all based well, on two things actually: fear and jealousy from people next to me that weren't getting paid for turbines that they could see and probably hear. That's easy to solve. The second bit, the fear. I'll talk about in a minute, but the second bit, the jealousy, is really, really easy to solve when if we're mature enough as regional communities, we can share the benefits from those wind turbines and preferably the equity as well as the income with everybody that's in the local community. Well, in your area, say, because you live out near Crookwell, what kind of things are happening there? um, Our shire is now the home of this is from the top of my head, about five wind farms, and those wind farms contribute well over half a million dollars every year, every year, into the local community in community enhancement funding. Half a million dollars every year. That's not counting the money they pay the hosts and the neighbours of the wind farms. So that's substantial. At the same time, the point is that we're solving the climate crisis. You're doing something positive, yes, because we need positive news knowing because I I look at news of Arctic ice uh, melting, uh, the permafrost disappearing, fires in the uh, Amazon forest and so on. But this is an example of a thing that we can actually do. It's a a great example and one of the best advantages of it is from an Australian perspective where something like 85 or 90% of the population live in large urban cities like Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Canberra, Adelaide, Perth, that's about it. 85% of the people live in those cities. We can actually reverse the rural decline and have people moving from the cities to the regions and reinvigorating the economies across regional Australia. Now, uh, farming communities, of course, uh, being traditionally a conservative uh, constituency, and uh, we have the Liberal Party and the, their partners, the National Party, who, uh, uh, well, let's, let's face it, uh, largely climate denying or at least ignoring, or they might say something but not do that much. Yep. But you, you got involved, and, and I think you're one of the founders of Farmers for Climate Action. Yeah. Is that part of your thinking? Um, How did that come about? So as a, as a consequence of my advocating for wind turbines in a, a very contentious space for four or five years, just on my own bat, I was on the local council for four years, and then I continued to promote the benefits of wind turbines. And then I, I got a job with a, an organisation called the Australian Wind Alliance, they approached me again at a, at a community energy conference. It was actually here in Canberra in 2014. And I I was actually getting paid then to do what I love doing, which is talking about the benefits of renewables, wind particularly, but renewables generally, and, and the passion that I have for regional Australia. That was in 2015. Um, as, as a consequence of that, I was approached by a group, a lady who started, who wanted to workshop this idea of, having a group of farmers or people in the agricultural industries who were interested in promoting the benefits of taking action on climate, not necessarily to the individuals, but to the the agricultural community as a whole. And there's massive benefits there that are just being realised now. It does really disappoint me that our traditional so-called representatives, the nationals, are not embracing this huge opportunity 
as enthusiastically as they could be, if at all. So I, I, I think it sounds like it has two main prongs to it. One is bringing benefits to the communities, to the farming regions on one hand, and the other hand being a political force. How involved do you get on the political side? Um, we're, 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 cha- we're, we're becoming advocates for action on climate because apart from the benefits that we've been talking about, Australian farmers are one of the most exposed people on this planet to the ravages of climate. We've seen that already in Australia. We're only 1.1 or think of 1.2 degrees of warming. Now, if we get to 1.5 degrees, which is the Paris commitment, which is in doubt. In fact, a lot of people are saying we're not going to meet it as on a global scale. The ravages of climate in Australia will be really dire. That is the scary bit. The good bit is that if we do it properly and we integrate renewables and healthy soils and being paid to grow carbon in trees and conserve our river systems, our water supplies, then we can have – there's advantages in that. So farmers not only are not going to be hit as hard by the the ravages of of an out-of-control climate, we're also going to be in a position – where we can take advantage of this economic gold boom. It's like a, I often say it's like the wool boom of the 1950s that I'm old enough just to remember. That wool boom was it's still talked about, the golden bale and all that. It only lasted about 10 years at the most. This boom, this renewable energy boom, could be like that wool boom, but it's going to last for decades and it's going to be across the whole of regional Australia. Why are we not embracing it, particularly our political leaders? I, I think I know why, and I'm happy to explain. Well, there's, about there's that. a question for you, Charlie. Why, <laughs> why do you think it's not happening? Um, in the regions, as well as farmers, there are miners. And in relation to miners, there's a lot of people that work in really horrible work environments, in coal mines particularly, that get paid a lot of money to work in those uh, mines. And, and this, this includes the emerging uh, threat of, of gas fields, which we can talk about later, but those people need to be looked after. And I was just listening to a, a podcast the other day, the science show on the ABC. In Germany, they've actually closed down their coal industry and re, reorganised and re um, reorganised work for 130,000 coal miners. So they've redeployed them to new industries, to renewable energy yep. related industries. Offered the older ones voluntary redundancy on, on attractive terms, but offered anybody that's in that industry. By, by definition, most miners are, an in, an, an, are engineers. And most people that are required in the renewable energy, energy industry also need to be engineers. Well, Charlie, I think I learned when I visited your property recently, uh, and I didn't appreciate this, is you see a wind turbine goes up on the hill, mm-hmm. right, and I kind of had this assumption that the thing just sits there and it works away, but mm-hmm. you were saying that they, they require maintenance, so they're not just build them and walk away and forget them. There's ongoing employment for people in that field, is yep. that right? Yep, yep. Very, very critical part of the whole political argument in Australia in relation to climate is that, and I heard, uh, I was saying on the science show, uh, Robin Williams was interviewing the head of the miners' union who was telling this story about what's happening in Germany. 
the miners, the individual people that work in the mines and the coal-fired power stations need to have some surety over their future. I do as a farmer, you do as a radio presenter. It, it's just, it, it, to leave those people stranded is, which, which has happened up until now in this country, you can't expect anything except the revolt that we've had. Do you, to, do you think that basically those people have been ignored and that they're going to be left behind by technology and the economics anyway and we can do it, make it easy for them or we can just let them sit there and make it more difficult? No, like anything, uh, Rod, the, the longer you leave action, the harder it is to take it and the more dramatic it needs to be when you take it. Those people's future in the long term are really, really uh, tenuous anyway because the future of coal, and we can talk about the global situation, but the future of coal is very, very limited economically. Forget about the climate for a minute. Coal is way more expensive, way more dirty. It, uh, the health impacts of coal are just extraordinary. So we need to those we need to get the message to those people. And this is the head of the miners' union that was talking, not me, not um, Nash, Michael McCormack, the head of the Nationals. Those people need some sort of long-term vision presented to them that will offer them a, a, a valuable job in a clean industry instead well, of... Well, Charlie, you remind me that I interviewed the, uh, the guy who led the climate rally to Queensland. And he was a Welsh guy, a fifth-generation coal miner. Mm -hmm. And here he was uh, leading the climate rally with Bob Brown and others up to Queensland. Look, I, I love yeah. the, uh, the the positive approach that you, you're taking. You say every problem is a risk but it's also an opportunity yeah and uh, when we come back we might take a little song break let's talk about okay. the international situation because australia has kind of left itself hung out to dry i think my guest here on fuzzy logic is uh, charlie prell and charlie i'm very pleased to say it's one of the people whose story appears in my book 10 journeys on a fragile planet now, a really interesting thing about writing that book is that uh, it's kind of, pardon the expression, bookended by the term of Donald Trump, because when I began writing the book, he was just coming into power, and what a depressing moment that was. But then, as the book was released, he uh, was also uh, being ousted <laughs> with all the chaos that he was uh, causing in the process. But uh, that has brought a change to the political environment. And we now have uh, President Biden, Vice President Kamala uh, Harris. We've got uh, the European Union are now talking about imposing uh, costs on countries that uh, don't have adequate uh, carbon emissions targets. And so, Charlie, it's a, it's a tricky situation. We've kind of wedged ourselves to here in Australia. What's what's happening at the moment? Can I just preempt that, Rod, by asking a quick quiz to you and your listeners? Why is our target for the Paris Agreement twenty six to twenty eight percent? Twenty six to twenty eight percent. Yep. It seems like a fairly arbitrary number, doesn't it? It is. It is an arbitrary number. It was set because that is the current target of reductions for the US that was set by um, Donald Trump. By Donald yeah. Trump. Yep. 26, 28%. So, 
that's why our target is 26 to 28%. And there's been no discussion in this country about anything except reducing it. No, no discussion about increasing it. And how far off that is that? Um, when, when, when that target was set, the professionals in Australia, the independent think tank, the Climate Institute, said that our target should be closer to 45% than 26 to 28%. The US, under the new president, is already indicating, strongly indicating, that their new target, which will be announced in a couple of weeks at the summit that, that um, President Biden is holding, will be somewhere between 45 and 50% on 2005 levels by 2030. You know, what What really strikes me, Charlie, about our slow response to climate is this is not like doing a school assignment or a university assignment. You can't leave it until the night before. Mm. And, and that sort of seems to be the logic of, of what's happening. Well, we'll fix it when and if we need mm. to. But mm. we're talking about the climate system, which has a response time of decades, hundreds of years or even thousands yeah. of years uh, potentially. So if the US are going to double their ambition, which they are, one of the largest economies in the world, and Britain, under a conservative government, already has a target, has achieved 51% reduction in their emissions from their 1990 levels, which is like 60%. So I just want to repeat that word you just used, a conservative government did that. <laughs> yep. And they're, they're reaping the benefits of that. And they're discussing, they're talking right now in Britain, they're talking about lifting that target from 51% to 68% by 2030. We need to work out what's going on on the rest of the planet because there's, there's already been commentary. Japan has a target and they're looking at lifting that ambition. South Korea has a target, net zero emissions by 2050, both of those countries. China has a net zero emissions target by 2060. That's legislated. They are the three biggest trading partners that we have in this country. So we as farmers need to be aware that those people are our customers. And the old dictum, what is it? The customer's always right. Well, if those customers are saying, we're going to do this, they're not going to be coming here to buy our stuff. They're going to be going somewhere else where people are matching their ambition on climate and buying their stuff first. They might come to us last. It's already been demonstrated because there's a, with the Brexit thing, in Europe, the Europeans, now not part of, Britain's not part of the European Union anymore, Britain have to renegotiate their free trade agreements with Australia and New Zealand. They've already said in black and white they're going to go to New Zealand first because the climate ambition in New Zealand is greater than Australia's. That doesn't really matter because Britain is not a great, huge trading partner of ours. But if Europe go down the same path... They are the fourth largest trading partner with Australia. So we're going to start losing our markets. No, our customers. And you know what the other dictum about customers is? The hardest customers to win is the one you've already lost. So we can't afford to lose those customers. That's me speaking as a farmer and as the chair of Farmers for Climate Action. And we need to take account of that when we start talking, have these, these political discussions within this country about whether we're going to do anything about climate change. And uh, the European Union is now talking about uh, imposing penalties on countries, and that would affect mm -hmm. us as well, right? It would directly affect our export costs or their import costs from us? It would affect the price of our produce in Europe because there would be a tariff on it. 
And so we're going to price ourselves out of the market. If we want to. But I don't think we, we don't need to because well, we've already talked about the advantages of um, to farmers and to regions and to Australia generally from renewables by far outweigh, as long as we look after the miners that we talked about earlier, they, the advantages by far outweigh the costs of taking action on climate. But the problem is the vested interests in the fossil fuel industry, including the oil companies and the, and the gas companies, and we need to talk about them before this interview finishes, but the vested interests in those three sectors are really, really powerful and they're very, very influential, influential in Australia and they're very wealthy. How, how significant is agriculture to the Australian economy? Um, well, and, and Econom- Economically, um, it's, it's critical to the welfare of regional Australia. Environmentally and socially, it's not critical. It's just fundamental to the whole fabric of Australian society. You know that image of the man from Snowy River, the Australian farmer? Those farmers are pretty few and far between now. And those farmers need to be cared for. Otherwise, we're going to lose that iconic image of a farmer. And and in in some ways, that would be a good thing. But in, in other ways, those people need to be looked after and educated and brought along as part of this discussion the same way as the coal miners need to be included in the discussion. There needs to be a huge level of information sharing, extension work going on about the opportunities that, that are just paramount. We, Farmers for Climate Action, we produced a, a, a publication. The, the government during the pandemic called for submissions to an eco, to the government the for stimulus, economic stimulus. Right? We produced a document called Regional Horizons, we, as in Farmers for Climate Action, produced this document called Regional Horizons, which was our vision for resurrecting regional Australia. And it didn't have anything to do with gas or coal or, coal or fossil fuels. It had everything to do with um, educating farmers, with coordinating actions across levels of government, state government and federal government, and I- implementing regional resilience hubs which the, the government's actually done that, the federal government. They've, they've called them drought resilience hubs, but they've tended for them. They haven't actually implemented them yet, but they're working in, in there. That's good. And also, we need a land and environment fund, like a land care type fund. Land care is one of the most successful organisations this country has ever had. It was a, a coalition between uh, the Greens and the Green, the environmentalists and the farmers. And it, it, it ended up planting billions of trees across Australia in a joint um, cooperative structure that was funded, underwritten by the government. It was a 50-50. The farmers got the, the fencing material and the trees from, from Landcare, which was funded by the government, and they had to go out and plant them. And it still works, but Landcare now has been pretty much defunded by all levels of government. There's an opportunity there to, to reinvigorate that sort of initiative across regional Australia. So, Charlie, what you're saying is that um, farming, farming rural communities are really part of the fabric of Australia as much as anything. But also, yeah. it really, it, I can't help thinking that it's not just about the economy, but the fact that we like to eat. And producing food is, you know, like if you don't have food, you, you're in real trouble. And Australia is a net f- food surplus producer, I think. 
but I think you were suggesting earlier that if we don't look after climate, if we don't look after our environment, then that's under threat. It's not under threat. It's already happening. And during the, the most recent drought from 2015 to 2019, we actually imported wheat into this country. We imported wheat? Yep, and we stopped growing rice. Then we imported rice. I didn't know that. No, not, no, not many people do. We do export a lot of food, but we also import a lot of food. Um, we need to be really, really secure. We need to be really, really um, careful that we don't take for granted this thing that we, you know, Donald Hall called the lucky, Donald Horn called the lucky country in the 1950s. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> apart from climate change, yep. and you mentioned gas, and there's fracking, yep. of course. And yep. uh, do you want to talk me through that? Well, the government's response to the the pandemic is a gas-led recovery. They they talk about it over and over and over and over and over again. The problem with the gas-led recovery, apart from the fact that natural gas is predominantly methane, which is way, way more damaging to climate than carbon dioxide, the problem with the gas-led recovery is that when you extract gas from the ground, you also have to use a lot, unbelievable amount of water. And that water becomes polluted, either, either is polluted as it comes out of the ground from the from the methane and the gas, or it becomes polluted as part of the process of getting the gas out of the ground. The, f the, the food bowl of this country is the Murray-Darling Basin plant, um, the Murray-Darling Basin, and most of the gas that's being proposed is in the Murray-Darling Basin. And if we compromise the water, not just the water in the aquifer that, is, that becomes the Murray-Darling Basin, but also the water that needs to be used to get gas and coal out of the ground, there's a choice, there's a thing called an opportunity cost. We can either use that water for growing food or we can use it for mining, gas and, or, and coal. We can't do both. There's only one tank of water. You can't use it twice. You can only use it once. So if we, start, if we keep using it the way we are, wasting it, I think, in, in growing, uh, sorry, in mining coal and gas, and we can't use it for food, and the climate predictions on rainfall are pretty dire, then the water supply is going to reduce and we're going to be using all of the water we have to produce energy, which we won't be any good because we won't have anything to eat and we, we'll all be looking for somewhere else to Yes, live. well, Will, Will Stefan told me when I interviewed him a few months ago that if climate change proceeds as we as we on the current path, Yep. that the climate of Melbourne will become the climate of Moree. <laughs> and so that's an immediate risk to our rainfall patterns. Yep. And if we damage our, our groundwater supplies and our rivers, then we're in real stuff. I think we might break to okay. another song track, Charlie. All right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Let's talk about Farmers for Climate Action when we get back. Farmers for Climate Action, uh, Charlie Prell, uh, you're the... Chair. The chair of that and one of the founders. What a brilliant uh, notion that is, I think. And uh, Charlie Prell is one of the people in my book, 10 Journeys on a Fragile Planet. Great to be talking to you today here, Charlie. Uh, the passenger here on 2XX, Fuzzy Logic, and my guest today, Charlie Prell from Farmers for Climate Action. And I guess the, uh, the song title there is probably quite good because we're not all passengers, are we, Charlie? We're, uh, we all have the ability to do something if we really have the motivation to do so. 
Look, I'm going to play a short couple of Vox Pops that I picked up from a Extinction Rebellion uh, protest on Friday. And uh, let's meet uh, Fiona and Damien. I've got um, a child who is going to have to live through the devastation that the climate change is going to reap on our, both our economy and our environment, and I'm very worried about it. How, how worried? I mean, how serious do you think it is? I think it's extremely serious. I think that I've, I've worked in climate change for 30 years, and 30 years they have, been, they have been stuffing around, and now it has come to a point at which we now have to take extremely urgent action on this because the economy will falter if we don't. When the economy falters, then we will have less jobs. If we keep hitting coal and don't move into the third industrial revolution, then we're backing stranded assets. So the coal people, they, they are facing a cliff. The coal miners are facing a cliff. Well, but before we uh, started the interview, you said you were optimistic. And what is it that gives you that sense of optimism or hope? Well, what gives me optimism is that the U.S. has now changed. The U.S. is now um, supporting climate change. It's supporting it in a big way. China is turning. China has our renewable energy. What would you say to a politician who might be listening to you now? Politicians of all parties need to take this seriously. If you want to keep your jobs and help the economy, then you need to change. You need to move into the third industrial revolution because if you don't, we're falling off a cliff. Damon, you're here too. You were just wandering past like I was. What made you stop? They've got uh, climate action happening here, so, you know, there's um, a lot to be said for looking after this earth. Well, you, you just said you have a background in, in environmental science. So what's your take on what you see happening to the planet right now? I think it's pretty sad, actually. Um, and I'm a contributor as well. I like my electricity, but um, I think we all have to um, start looking at ways that we can reduce greenhouse emissions and, you know, look after this planet for future generations. Are you, you frustrated with uh, the politics in Australia and, well, generally? Oh, isn't everyone? Yeah, I'm not sure the politicians are quite in touch with what is actually happening on, um, yeah, in the real world. Um, I don't know what else to say about that. Well, good on you, Damon, and thanks for your time. No worries. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, there you go. Uh, a couple of people I met on Friday from the Extinction Rebellion, and it kind of shows to me the things that they were saying and the very fact that they were there even. The general frustration of people, the lack of action, and people are genuinely concerned. And uh, my guest uh, today on Fuzzy Logic, Charlie Prell, I think you'll have a few comments to say about that because the Farmers for Climate Action uh, movement uh, expresses the concern of what are traditionally a conservative constituent and traditionally voters for what was used to be called the country party. Remember them? <laughs> I do, I do. Um, 
They're now called the Nationals. They were the National Party, now the Nationals. Uh, there's a lot of rebranding going on, but... Well, tell me, we, uh, tell me a bit more about Farmers for Climate Action and what sort of things yeah. are you doing? Where do you come from? So, so we, 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 a group of us got together in the Blue Mountains in 2014, 2015, a couple of times, to just explore the concept of... This was in the face of a very, very anti-climate government led by Tony Abbott. Um, this, the, the group of people from all over Australia decided that it was worth having a go at seeing if we could shift the, the, the public perception of farmers being uh, backwards, um, um, people who were Resist, resistant to change. Yeah, um, unwilling to embrace the, the, the fact that climate change was going to happen. They were seen to be um, uneducated, um, not very up to date with the latest climate data. Well, Ch Charlie, uh, I think it was Olympia Yaga, who's another person in the book, yep. said that Australian farmers among, are among the most innovative people you meet anywhere. Some Australian farmers are, there's no doubt about that. But a lot of Australian farmers look at their peers and follow their peers. That's numerically, not necessarily by scale. But so we needed we, the group of people in the 2015 decided that it was worthwhile just having a look at whether we could find somebody who would support us financially, firstly, which we which we did, and then uh, embracing the conservative side of politics instead of fighting the conservative side of politics, which was pretty much the message in from Extinction Rebellion, and try to convince them, particularly the Nationals that there was a threat here, a dire threat. At the same time, there was an opportunity here, if we got it right, to address climate, but also to re-empower and reinvigorate regional Australia, which I talked about earlier. That movement started in 2015, just six years ago, and now we have more than 25,000 social media followers. We have well over 5,000 farmers who are members. We have a multi, uh, not a multi-million dollar, I wish, but we have a, a million dollar plus budget. We're employing 11 people and a board from all over Australia who are really focused on that mission, which is to realign the conservative side of politics, particularly the nationals who, who represent us traditionally, the country party that you talked about, to realign them with the interests of this group of farmers who are substantial to get some movement in relation to climate. How, how do you reach the farmers who might not otherwise engage with you? Is that, a, is that proving difficult or are you finding that they're a receptive mob? Like most things, if, if, there, if, there's, a, if there's a groundswell of interest, then there's, there's generally a, a leader in the pack, but there's generally then <coughs> followers. So we're, we're trying to engage leaders in the agricultural communities farmers and agricultural suppliers and get them to forums which we call masterclasses or fellowships and give them the information about climate which not many people are really aware of and then the forecast that you mentioned about you know melbourne potentially being the same temperature as dubbo in 20 or 30 years time and then so imagine what it's like in in dubbo if melbourne's as hot as dubbo how hot's dubbo uh, how how big is it? <laughs> well, how hot is it? Oh, hot! Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah. that's where the farms are. Dubbo's Dubbo's in the in the um, Murray Darling Basin. 
So we need farmers to be aware of that data. And it's a bit confronting and threatening to, to, to see that data. But then use that information to give farmers the opportunity through education to become more resilient in the face of that hostile climate, which may or may not become. Well, one of the uh, things that I think the government has put its weight behind is uh, soil carbon. Mm -hmm. And there's opportunities on farms for capturing carbon, not just in the soil, but on top of the soil. Yep. Uh, Where do you see that? There's a really important aspect to all of this, and it is the soil because the soil grows the food that we mentioned earlier with water. It's got to be hydrated, but it's got to be... You can't grow... Well, you can grow food in factories, but it's not terribly nutritious, to be honest, <laughs> without demeaning food, food in, growing in factories. But if, if people understand the importance of soil and hydrated soil, they should be then... Uh, edu- they can be taught to look after it better because at the same time as burning a whole bunch of fossil fuels over the last 250 years in the Industrial Revolution, we've actually degraded our soils and we need to reinvigorate our soils. And, and the best way to um, encourage that is through support, through agricultural support mechanisms. So the question of soil is not just about sequestering carbon, it's got to do with farm productivity. No, it's got to do with soil health. And the productivity is a consequence that's, of the health that's, of the soil. That's what I meant, yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So there's a, there's a double opportunity there for, there for farmers. What kind of things can they do to enhance their, uh, their, their soil health? Uh, we probably don't have time to go into that in detail here, Rod, but there's, there's lots and lots of organisations. There's movements called um, the Regenerative Agriculture Movement is one of them. Carbon Farmers of Australia is another one. Um, there's a, there's, a, there's a myriad of groups. If, if, if you type in regenerative agriculture into your search engine, which doesn't have to be Google, by the way, but it can be if you want it to be, <laughs> um, then, oh, then you'll, you'll, you'll see the options. So yeah. that's a bit of a, um, a rabbit hole. We won't go down no. <laughs> <laughs> that all rabbits. But uh, I am one of the organisers of a sustainable agriculture conference uh, mm-hmm. at the end of August. Yep, and uh, we'll be giving that a plug, and hopefully we get some involvement with uh, farmers for climate action. We'll, we'll yeah, talk we'll about talk that about off air. But listen, Let, the, let's the, go back to some of the things that. Yeah, so so you you need you need to be able to finance this revolution that's coming. They, they used to talk about the green revolution, which was when agriculture became efficient enough to feed the growing population on the planet. There's another green revolution happening right now, which is about um, not just sustainable food but nutritious food. And that is directly related to the health of the soil. So, okay, okay. So connect the dots. So that needs to be funded. The, the initiatives that I talked about need to be funded. So there's a virtual circle going on here. The, virtu- the, the funding can become from renewable energy. So I'm just kind of seeing this triangle or maybe it's a square, but all these connecting dots, yeah, soil health, uh, farm health, yep. uh, farmers psychological and economic viability human health human health human nutrition and dare we say climate health it's a virtuous circle and and it's it's actually achievable it's just the later we leave it the harder it'll be and the more rushed it'll be the more people will get disillusioned and and maybe disenfranchised and burned along the way but we need to get on with it there is a level of urgency here but it's not too late 
And we need to make sure... So Farmers for Climate Action are very, very focused on two things. Educating people on the ground, farmers and, and agricultural suppliers on the ground, and changing the politics in this country. The new um, US president is helping us with the political situation, but it's up to us to change what happens on the ground. And that includes water management, which is the critical resource in this country, as I said before. Yes, without water, you don't have crops, and without crops, you don't eat. It's quite simple, really. Yep. <laughs> and uh, what's the next big thing on the horizon for Farmers for Climate Action? So the next big thing, I, well, the next thing for us is to, we're, we're, we're oh, actually, I'm travelling to Tasmania in a couple of weeks for AgFest, which is a huge field day in Tasmania at Hagley, which is just out of Launceston. But then in, in, in the succeeding week to that, there's a, a conference in Dubbo called the Renewables in Agriculture Conference. And I think I said the 19th of May. No. And we can we can give sure. details to that via our... Uh, we're on Facebook. We're also yep. on uh, Twitter. So it's the National Renewables in Agriculture Conference. It's in Dubbo, which is the centre of this renewable energy zone in New South Wales, which actually should be the whole of New South Wales, but don't tell anybody that. Yep. Um, so it's on the 19th of May in about, what's that, a month or so away? 19th of May. And yep. well, well, maybe we'll go along as Fuzzy Logic, record some interviews and sell I'll, a few books. I'll definitely be there, Rod. I'll be presenting there, and I've, I've been helping to organise it. So, Well, we're, we're yeah. just about out of time. Uh, Charlie, any final thoughts before we wrap up? No, but listen, everybody can make a difference. Everybody can make a difference no matter what they do, what they do, whatever they're passionate about, whether it's picking up litter, whether it's recycling, whether it's getting an EV or riding a push bike or getting an electric scooter instead of a, you know, using your legs instead of your wheels all that stuff living sustainably everybody can do something i think that's a really really good message and and a quick plug for today's ask fuzzy column which relates yeah. to driverless cars oh really yes and <laughs> la last week uh, i wrote about the technology involved which is pretty formidable yeah uh but then in this week's column today i talk about uh, the people side there are people sitting inside that car, and that's a far more complicated than I think is generally realised. Okay. And it's been great to chat to you, Rod. I hope that I hope that people look up that because I'm I'm very interested. I want to on my bucket list is to get an EV. My wife and oh, I yeah, electric vehicle, uh, self-driving vehicles, yeah, and ride a bicycle. What a great message! <laughs> uh, great, great to talk to you today, Charlie. Murray, thanks, thanks very much for coming in today. It's my pleasure, right? Any time. And uh, we'll be back next week. More action on Fuzzy Logic 2XX. Catch you later.